Proverbs chapter 29, let's begin reading in verse 1. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Whoever loves wisdom makes his father rejoice, but a companion of harlots wastes his wealth. The king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. By transgression, an evil man is snared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. The righteous considers the cause of the poor, but the wicked does not understand such knowledge. Scoffers set a city aflame, but, a wise, but wise men turn away wrath. If a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there is no peace. The bloodthirsty hate the blameless, but the upright seek his well-being. <coughs> Excuse me. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. If a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. The poor man and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. The king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. When the wicked are multiplied, transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. Correct your son, and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. A servant will not be corrected by mere words, for though he understands, he will not respond. Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. He who pampers his servant from childhood will have him as a son in the end. An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Whoever is a partner with a thief hates his own life. He swears to tell the truth, but reveals nothing. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice from man comes from the Lord. An unrest man unjust man, rather, is an abomination to the righteous, and he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this chapter. We know you have plans for it in our lives, and we, we yield our hearts to you. We want to be made more like Jesus this morning as a result of these verses, and not just gaining knowledge, but actually being changed and further mature in our thoughts towards you and in our um, desire to please you, Lord. We want to please you with our life. We want to bring you joy and, and blessing, Lord, by our actions. And so we yield ourselves now to, to you. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. Pray that you would um, uh, illuminate our hearts, Lord, to your word. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. been a few weeks since we've been in Proverbs and getting closer to the end, just, uh, just a few more chapters, and we've been looking at God's wisdom. We've been seeing some reoccurring themes as we've gone through the book, um, and we've seen this definition of, of a fool 
kind of explained and revealed in his word that a fool is someone who has, has one main characteristic, but it kind of overflows into their actions, or I should say lack of actions, in a predominant way. The, the main characteristic of a fool is someone who knows and refuses to do what they know to be the right thing. And oftentimes that carries over into uh, them being lazy. That's a predominant characteristic as we've seen as we've gone through the book of Proverbs. There's a lot of laziness um, uh, expressed by fools in Scripture and also in life. And so it kind of makes sense that, that that would be a main characteristic because if we're, doing, if we're not doing the things that we know to, to do from God, then we're walking in our sinful nature, we're walking in our flesh. And our flesh is lazy, our flesh loves to blame shift, our flesh loves to, to be a victim, even when it's not. There's all kinds of motivations that come from our flesh that can manifest themselves in laziness and making poor decisions and refusing to do the thing that we know to do. As I've mentioned, as we've gone through the book, Solomon who wrote most of these Proverbs, towards the end of his life, turned his back on a lot of these things and didn't obey them and suffered as a result of it. So not only can we know these things and not do them, but we could, if we were called to back in Solomon's day and we were him, we could actually be the one that God used to write down and record these sayings and still suffer as a result of not obeying him, obeying God. And so we have to learn those lessons. And that's why when we read the book of James, and we see that he talks about that we need to, when we look into God's Word, it's like a mirror. We need to remember what we look like when we went away from. Just like when we're in a mirror, you don't want to forget in the morning how bad you look, uh, because then you might go out and start your day off looking that bad without fixing yourself up a little bit and get the bedhead kind of pressed down a little bit and, you know, wash your face and so forth. And, um, so it's brilliant. It's a brilliant illustration in God's word because we know all about mirrors and we know all about forgetting what we look like. And that's kind of what God is trying to prevent us from doing by having us look into God's word, see that there's a distance between what we're doing and what we're thinking and our motivation for things and what God's word says, and then not make any changes and not repent and not put things into practice. And that's what James talked about, hearing the word but not doing the word, deceiving ourselves. He knows that all of us can engage in that, and all of us have engaged in that. So it's important that we look at these things and we remember that this is God's wisdom, and wisdom is justified by our children, Jesus said. So as we put these things into practice, then we get to live the life that reflects back on God's word, revealing that or confirming that God's word is what it is because of our lives looking a different like a different kind of life or, or different wisdom ruling our lives. So he begins in verse 1 here, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. So he says here, his person who is often rebuked and doesn't repent, basically, hardens his neck. That's the term that he uses. You know, a lot of times he calls them stiff-necked in the Old Testament. That's a good way to describe it, because when you're stubborn and you're not letting up and you're just going to do what you're going to do, no matter what anyone says, you're, you're locked in. 
you know, and even to your posture, you know, you're, 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 you're stiffened in that way. And so this kind of person, and there's a degree of us in all, with all of us that has these characteristics at times when we know what we should do and we are stubborn and, we, and we're refusing to obey what God says. But there's a type of person that that's a characteristic of their life. That's something that's an ongoing pattern where they are constantly being rebuked by someone who loves them enough to rebuke them. And I mean doing it appropriately in love and all that. I'm not talking about the other bad models that uh, are out there. But someone that does it lovingly and rebukes them and all that, they continuously ignore what they have to say and they harden their neck and they're stubborn and all of that. And God's trying to protect them, trying to warn them, trying to keep them from in, uh, reaping the consequences of their behavior and all of that, because we're told in Scripture in Galatians that God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So he's, Paul wrote that to Christians. You know, we can reap things that God doesn't want us to reap if we're uh, ongoing in an ongoing uh, disobedient condition. And so this sudden destruction comes. Notice he says that that will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy, that there's no solution, there's no way to make up for it, there's no way to compensate supernaturally. There's a point at which that God's done everything that he's going to do to prevent us from living this lifestyle or to going against what God says to do. And then there's a point in time where he, there's nothing else that can be done. And that's what we don't want. We don't want to be left to our, um, Jesus said he'd never leave us nor forsake us. And, and, but there's a person that is just going to continuously disobey what God says, and then there's going to be consequences for that. It's good to remember, and I love this little saying, it's helped me a lot, and it's this. Things that God forbids, they are sinful because they're bad, not bad because they are sinful. God is trying to protect us from all kinds of destruction and pain and heartache. He's a loving father, and we can just think that, oh, he's just trying to ruin my fun and trying to, you know, be a killjoy and all all these things. But in reality, he's trying to save us from heartache and pain and all of those things. So he uses people, and he does it directly, obviously, too, with rebuking us, and, and, but we shouldn't be hardening our neck or, or being stubborn. We need to have soft hearts towards him, and when he speaks, we need to repent quickly. And, the, you know, it's funny because the more godly you are, the more you re- you're repenting. We think it's the opposite. Think, oh, the more godly I am, the less repenting I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be sinning less. But what happens is the more godly you are, at least that's what I'm told by other people that are godly, is um, you start being aware more of your sin. So you start, even though you're maybe sinning in some ways less, in other ways, you're recognizing that you've been sinning more than you thought all along, and you're repenting. And you know that's why anyone that encounters the Lord and sees Him high and lifted up says, "I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips." And and so, the reality is, the closer you get to the standard, the closer that, that I get to the standard, the more we realize we don't meet that standard. And and so, but again, this is talking about willful disobedience and all that. We need to have soft hearts and repent of those things. Verse 2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Isn't this true? (laughs) No, a godly ruler greatly affects, or an ungodly ruler greatly affects the people that they oversee. And there's many 
reasons why this happens because rulers have a great influence in people's lives and 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 it affects people and when they are ungodly they make decisions and do things that start a chain of events that affect people in a negative way even if they try to do things you know and try to have these things be done to help people the fact is they're disobeying god and they're disobeying what god wants them to do so as a result of that their bad things are going to happen so this is why one of the reasons many reasons why christians should vote we should affect the culture god's called us to be the influencers in this culture for him so any me- mechanism or means by which we can affect change we need to do that we need to affect it's not ungodly at all to get involved with politics i know that's that's dangerous potentially to say that people can take that and run with it and do all kinds of crazy things i understand but there's a godly way to be involved in politics there's a godly way to be um, salt and light and that's what god's called us to do is to be engaged in those things and make a difference in this world for him and there's ways to do that without overtly you know shouting from the rooftops that this is because of god's word or whatever we can affect change and and do things in the culture that affect things for good and actually can be used by the lord but it's it's not something that we're necessarily advertising as a christian you know motivation for why we are doing it i do want to say also just as a side note is that god doesn't need a democracy to to function in a government god wrote all these things back in the new testament and even in the old testament many ways many of these many of these kings were wicked in the old testament but even in the new testament the roman government the roman empire was in full swing completely ruled by the empire the emperor and and so we have to recognize that god doesn't yes he would rather have something that is more godly and all of those things but you can have a godly monarchy so he doesn't have to have he doesn't tell us anywhere we have to be in a, a democracy a representative republic like we get to enjoy it's great it's wonderful We're, we definitely are for it um, but but it doesn't have to happen for christianity to thrive verse three whoever loves wisdom makes his father rejoice but a companion of harlots wastes his wealth so that we've seen this over and over we've gone through this book we've seen him talk about doing having sons and daughters engage in behavior and follow wisdom and follow the instruction of their parents and they end up having wonderful lives and lives that parents could look at and grandparents could look at and say that blesses me to see that and we can lose sight of the fact that god wants us to use godly influence in our kids lives and our grandkids lives and so forth and god will use those things even if we may not see them right away see the result of it right away sometimes we may not see it for a while but he tells us anyway to be faithful to do it so he says whoever loves wisdom makes his father rejoice but a companion of harlots wastes his wealth that's a quick way to have a father not rejoice is to waste wealth on sexual immorality and all these things and it doesn't have to be that particular expression of sin it could be many different expressions of sin but the point is god wants us to lead by example and he wants us to have our children uh, be upright and holy and godly and all those things and that can definitely happen as we are faithful to um, raising up in the way they should go verse four 
The king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. So we see here, every king does establish a land by justice, by doing things correctly. And, and when people need justice done, and people do things that aren't good, or think people that do things that are, that are good, that they're recognized appropriately according to a righteous law. But if a king starts treating people differently because of bribes, in other words, they're not giving people justice because they've been given uh, bribes one way or the other. In other words, to, to not give people bad things that they deserve or to give people good things that they don't deserve, then he's overthrowing his own land, whether he recognizes it or not. Look at verse 4. He says, the king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. Now, a king that receives bribes is not usually thinking when they receive bribes, hey, I'm on the process of overthrowing the land that I oversee. And, and bad things are going to happen. He doesn't normally think that. But God knows that that's what's going to happen because he's not, God's very much for justice being done in a nation, in a country, in a city, and all those things. And when you don't engage in those things properly and you're not doing what's right, and then God's going to bring judgment on, on that person and on that land, unfortunately. And, and that's what happens. So um, people, they, they shouldn't have justice ignored um, because bribes are going on and all of that. It's just going to cause division. So we need to pray for our leaders that there's not bribes. There's all kinds of things that happen. We know that in our government today. People are doing special favors and special donations, and there's all kinds of things that are, are not right and not appropriate. And that's just we need to pray for our leaders to, to uh, not engage in those things. Verse 5. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. And the word flatters there in Hebrew comes from the word that means smooth. means smooth. You know people that are flattering you. They say smooth words. They say things that you like to hear. You ever had someone butter you up? I mean, I know your, our kids do that at times when they want something at times that's happened, but I'm talking about outside of your family. You know, someone's saying great things about you and you're just waiting for the other. What do they want? What are they going to try to get out of me? And, and, you know, people see right through that. Most people, some people don't. But a lot of people see right through that. And God is watching. It's not gonna, he's not going to bless our lives as if we're engaged in that. We're trying to you know, get some kind of gain out of somebody. And he says here at the end of the verse, we try to do that with our neighbor. He spreads a net for his feet. You're spreading a net for your own feet to get snared in if you are, have a normal pattern of flattering people for dishonest gain. So we need to do what's right for our neighbor, not flatter our neighbor to, hey, I want to, that's a nice John Deere mower that you got there. Uh, I noticed that you're really good at mowing that lawn perfectly and everything's in its place way better than I could ever do it. You just do an amazing job with it. Um, it. I'm sure it's not that John Deere tractor. I'm sure it's you and your skills and all of that. And, and by the way, can I borrow that thing? You know, can I just, I just want to, I just thought of that just now. Um, you know, can I borrow that uh, lawnmower? You know, they're going to see right through it. And I'm sure these are talking about way more serious matters than barring a lawnmower, obviously, but it's true. We can't be engaged in that, and we have to be careful when someone else is flattering us that we're not susceptible to, to it working, that we don't fall for it, that we say, no, that's not going to, you can flatter me all you want, um, 
if you love how well my lawn's done, you know, you know, maybe you can do my lawn next time and show me, and I'll help you improve and get better and better, you know, put it back on them, I don't know. But um, the point is, is that we're not supposed to be engaged in that, and we're actually hurting ourselves if we're uh, in the middle of that. Verse 6, by transgression an evil man is snared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. See, the, the deception is that I'm going to come out ahead if I'm engaged in transgression, if I'm doing things to try to get one over on somebody else and all of that, um, that I'm not going to be affected by it. Or I'm, not in, in the, I'm engaged in a sinful behavior and it's not going to affect me and it's not, it's not the case at all. He says, an evil man is snared, but the righteous sings and rejoice, rejoices. Why? Why does the righteous sing and rejoice? Because it's wonderful being free. I remember sharing my faith with somebody and they're saying, oh, you're one of those Christians, you, you know, you, you're, you're not free. I'm the one that's free. I can do whatever I want. And I just had learned the, the saying about freedom is not doing anything that you want. True freedom is having the power to not do the things that you shouldn't do. And we have that power. We have the power to not do the things that we know that we shouldn't do. By God's grace, by his word, by his power, we have the capacity to live obedient lives to him. That's true freedom. For it is by, for freedom that Christ has set us free. And, and that's what his word says. So it's beautiful just to see that the righteous sings and rejoices. You know, God sees us when we rejoice and we sing and we praise him and we give thanks to him. He sees all of that and it blesses him so much by us just being spontaneous and, and just rejoicing of, over what he has done. He's done so many amazing things. He's worthy of our worship. Verse 7, the righteous considers the cause of the poor, but the wicked does not understand such knowledge. The righteous such knowledge. What does it mean to consider the cause of the poor? It means to be concerned about what they go through, what they're experiencing, how they struggle, how I can help them, what it's like to be in their shoes, how can I give to them, how can I help them. It's being concerned and looking at it from all the different angles because God sees them so... It's, it's, God always has his eye on the poor. Always has his eye on the poor. But the wicked does not understand such knowledge. The wicked can't understand that because people that don't know Christ are self-consumed. So all they can think about is themselves. And they want to criticize the poor. Remember, this is in a culture where... If you're poor or you're sick or something, there's something wrong with you and your ancestry or something wrong with you sinned or your parents sinned or something, some, some horrific thing that you've done. But that's not the case. And God knows that. And he cares about the poor. And he wants us to engage them and help them and all of that. And it's beautiful when we do that. Verse 8. Scoffers set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. So scoffers, we've seen them, God talk about scoffers in the past, that they are basically, it's talking about scoffing God and mocking God and being a person that is focused on denying the Lord. Those people have, many of them have horrible tempers. When they don't get their way, they throw a tantrum and they, they go off on this huge tirade and they have uh, you know, great wrath that they express and all of that, but it says the wise men turn away from wrath. So 
He's, he's talked a lot about this. We've seen this all through Proverbs. He's talking about anger and fits of rage and all these things all through the book of Proverbs. It's a big problem in us, that rage that we can express. You know, Jesus said that that, um, that, that kind of temper and that kind of rage and that kind of anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Oh, but you don't know, I'm, I'm Irish. You don't know I'm this or that, and I have some excuse on why I'm more angry than other people and all these things. No, Christian, you're a believer. Your citizenship is in heaven. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. He gives you patience. He gives you self-control, all those things. So it's a process of learning how to give those things to him and be aware of where I'm at in my heart right now and what direction is this going and do I need to get away from the situation or do I need to take a few moments and pray and and ask God for patience and all these things we can't just go in our own strength and think that we're just going to be able to be patient all the time and not have issues with our temper it's not true it won't happen but God comes in and can just transform us and give us patience and all those things so scoffers they can do great damage but wise men turn away wrath he's going to talk more about wrath coming up here. Verse 9. A wise man contends with a foolish man, if, I should say, a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there is no peace. Wise people don't waste their time with foolish people in terms of debates and all these things and contentions and all of that. And what's the verse really talking about? I mean, why would he say this? I mean, if you want him to have laughter, because that means that he's maybe reacting positively to what you're saying. But he's saying no matter what the reaction is, whether it's rage in response to what you're saying when you're contending, or it's laughter and it's joy and all these things, if they're, if they're a fool, they're not going to change their actions. Their actions still won't change. No matter what their initial response is to what you're saying, there's still not going to be any peace because they're going to continue doing those things that are causing you to deal with them in the first place. They're not going to change until they stop being a fool. And when they stop being a fool, then those things can start to change. But until then, you're just wasting your time, at least in the sense of expecting any kind of change. It's not going to happen. Verse 10, the bloodthirsty hate the blameless, but the upright seek his well-being. Now, so the bloodthirsty, and I, you know, I think of terrorists, I think of people that are killers that are in other countries and in our country that are murderers and all these things. Um, it's, it's prevalent. It's way more prevalent. There's way more, don't say that word, murders are going down. They're not. They're going up. But you think of all this radical Islam and all that, and they hate us, and the more we engage them, the more they hate us. And we are, we're a reminder and we testify to their sinfulness and that how their, bloodthirst, their bloodthirsty characteristics are not right and appropriate and they hate us. And the more we engage them, the more they hate us. But the upright, they, we seek the well-being of the blameless. We, we, we desire to bless them. We want to help them. We want them to be helped and encouraged in all those things but the bloodthirsty they they hate us we shouldn't be surprised when people hate us jesus talked about that if they hated me they're going to hate you if they listen to my teaching they're going to listen to your teaching no servant's greater than his master so 
We can't, especially as things get worse and worse and worse and things unravel worse and worse and worse. There's more animosity and hatred towards believers. We can't be stumbled by the fact that the people hate us. And he's going to talk about the approval of man as a snare coming up, but it's related to that. We can't allow those things to change us and how we are in, in the sense of being appropriate towards them. Verse 11, more foolish talk here. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. There's this whole philosophy out there. If I feel it, I have to say it. No, you don't. No, I don't. Just because we feel it, just because it's something that our emotions are telling us, doesn't mean that we have to say it. What if, what if you walked through the day let's say this coming week, every day, every feeling that you had, there was a, going to be like a, some kind of sign on you that, that's going to spell out all the feelings that you have about people as you went through your week. Everything that you felt about somebody in every situation was going to be advertised on the front of you and they're going to be able to see what you felt. How would that be? So we already hold things back. But it's, it's interesting how they are, we use very convenient times or, or means by which to decide whether or not we should hold something back or not. And so he says here we need to be under con- the control of, of, of God here because a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. And it's not being fake. Sometimes, oh, if I don't vent everything that I'm feeling, I'm being fake and I'm not being real. No, you're, you're being a real person that controls their feelings and tames their tongue. You're being a real disciple. Real disciples don't vent everything that they feel at any given moment. We're called to tame the tongue. If, if we were called to share all those things all the time, we couldn't be called to tame our tongues because our t- tongues would be going nonstop because we're always feeling different things and all of that. We need to use wisdom. You know, as it's been said, you usually never regret the th- or rarely regret the things you didn't say. It's the things that you did say that you want to take them back. When you say something and blah, it comes out like a frog, you know, just, and you just want to grab it and put it back. Grab the words and put them back in your, in your mouth, but you can't do that. Excuse me. It's almost there. Sneeze. Yes. I was halfway a sneeze. So thank you. That was half, that was a God, half of a God bless you, so I'll take that. Um, just kidding. All right. I'm not going to vent my feelings on that. I'm just kidding. Okay, verse 12. If a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. Why is that? Why would serve all his servants become wicked? Because he's listening to lies and he's passing these things on to his servants. And of course, they're going to start believing these things. And usually these things that are being communicated are things that are bad about somebody else. And so the tendency is you're believing and then thus you're making decisions to act on these things that you're believing someone else thinks about you. And so you're plotting wicked towards somebody else. So obviously, if, if a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. And we could apply this to our family in a sense, because all of us rule our households. And if we have people in our households and we're believing lies, then it's going to affect them. It's going to affect our kids or our extended family, let's say. If we're believing lies and we're passing those things on, it's going to affect our family as well. So anyone that's in authority, I mean, as believers, period we should do be doing this but especially anyone that's in authority we need to test what we believe about 
a situation or about a person, we need to be careful and not just believe the first thing that we hear. We need to be very careful about what we take in, what we believe, and all these things and assess things fairly from all sides before we believe those things. In ancient Israel, a lot of the rabbis, when you'd come and start telling them about talking about somebody else and they weren't there to defend themselves, they'd cover one ear. And that would be a visual communication to you that they can only hear one side of the story right now and thus they're not going to give a decision about anything because they can't hear the other side of the story. So we need to do the same thing. We need to ask questions. We need to not assume the worst. We need to be thorough, do our due diligence to find out everything that we need to about the situation. And especially when we're in authority, that's a place of privilege. We could do damage in a place of authority, and we don't want to uh, believe lies as a result of it because others will be affected by it. Verse 13. The poor man and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. Interesting. Now the oppressor, I mean, we've seen this through the book of Proverbs, that often that the oppressor receives his wealth because of doing ungodly things to other people, especially the poor, or to people that may possibly made them poor. And as a result of that, um, they're kind of at odds with each other. And, be, and the poor people can have hatred towards other people that are oppressive, and oppressive people can have hatred towards the poor. And God is saying the Lord gives light to the eyes of both. The Lord gives life to, to, the, to both of them, which means that they need to treat each other appropriately. The oppressor needs to not oppress the poor anymore or oppress anybody. Poor people need to be fair in their opinions toward people that have money and everyone, of course. But God is the one that's the source of life for everybody. And we need to recognize that. And God calls it to reign on the just and the unjust. Because the goodness of God leads to repentance. So we need to understand that. We need to understand that the Lord gives light to both, to the eyes of both. Verse 14. The king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. Again, if you were poor, a lot of times that you were seen as cursed or something in, uh, inherently wrong with you and all of that. And because of that, a lot of kings would not apply truth to someone that was poor as their situation and would not give them justice and be mistreated and all of that. So they, it says here, the king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. We can't prejudge people's situation. We have to honestly find out about their situation, ask questions, and deal with them in, in, in the correct way that would be honoring to the Lord and all of that. So he's saying there's a great legacy that kings can have by doing things the right way and dealing with poor people appropriately and with truth. Verse 15, the rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Notice he doesn't just say the rod. He says the rod and rebuke give wisdom. Now we've seen over and over again him talk about the rod in the book of Proverbs, and that's important, but we need both. We don't, we're not called to, to beat kids, just to beat kids. Be, oh, God says I have to do a rod and all this. No, there's instruction behind it. There's encouragement. There's restoration and all these things. It says those things give wisdom because a child left to himself brings shame 
to his mother. Well, our society is filled with people like this right now. No discipline, no engagement at all. No, basically not even raising your kids at all. They're raising themselves. And, and so much attack has been on the family and criticizing believers for wanting for us to, for, for us promoting and wanting to promote in the society the sanctity of marriage and the family and, you know, corporal punishment and all these things. And they make fun of us, but yet the society is unraveling with people that were not raised and not disciplined at all in the things of the Lord. But even just right, basic right and wrong, they raised themselves for the most part. And no wonder we see everything falling apart because children have been left to themselves. And they're bringing shame not just on their parents, but on the whole culture in many ways. So if, if we just did things God's way, if we raised kids God's way, then our society would be a lot better off. Verse 16, when the wicked are multiplied, transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. When the wicked are multiplied, transgression increases. So the more wicked people there are, the more sin that's engaged in. And that should be pretty obvious here, but he says, what I want to focus on is the last part of 16, but the righteous will see their fall. God doesn't want us to have the heart that we want people to go to hell. We should never laugh about people that, the idea of people going to hell or any of those things, sin isn't funny, hell isn't funny. All those things are serious, and they, they're serious to the Lord. We should want people to go to heaven and all of that but also at the same time if they refuse we know that justice is going to be meted out and distributed and there'll be a day when we see all that when we see all those things happen and we will see their fall the wicked we, we in other words they think they have the last laugh now that they're winning because they're so-called getting away with all these things but they're not going to get away with it there's going to be a day of reckoning and so whether they get away with it or not shouldn't affect how we live. We should live and to please the Lord regardless. But the fact that we know God's word says that, that we are going to see their fall, and, and we're going to recognize that God is going to judge them. God wants us to know that. And we're going to see their fall. Verse 17. Correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give you delight to your soul. Correct your son, he will give you rest. And it's just, it's just he said it all through his word. We need to do these things. We need to spank our kids. We need to discipline our kids. We need to be consistent with those things. And why does he have to tell us? Verse 17. Why does he say, correct your son? Because our tendency can be to not correct them. Because sometimes we're, and we're going to get into the, that verse uh, about the fear of man. But we can, have, we can be seeking our ch children's approval so badly, and I mean that's totally, completely unhealthy, where we don't want, we don't, we're afraid that they're going to be mad at us, so we don't want to you know, spank them or discipline them and all of that, and God says we need to do that. We need to be faithful. We need to be consistent with that, and, and we can't, it's not about us. It's about them and what's best for them. They're going to be better off if they're raised. They may not understand it at the time, and they may not understand it hurts me more than it hurts you, and all those things are like, no, I'm pretty sure it hurts me worse right now, Dad. But they're going to be, they're going to be thankful later. They're going to be so thankful that we were faithful in that, and then we're going to see them potentially 
do that with their children and, and see the benefit of that. And then they'll know how hard it was for us to do that. Verse 18, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. Revelation is a privilege. And he's talking about God's word. That's why he references the law at the end of the verse. God's revelation, his word. When there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. There's no standard. When the standard isn't before the people and isn't before our own lives, then we cast off restraint. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, uh, sin will keep you from this book, and this book will keep you from sin. And it's true. There is no revelation the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. That's talking about the law of Moses. We have all of God's word. We have the whole thing, Genesis to Revelation. Happy, another word for happy is blessed. Blessed is he who keeps the law, who keeps his word, who obeys God's word. It's not a restraint, um, a restraining, restrictive life, and there's no fun, and there's no joy, and all of that. It's the most abundant life we can live. That's where we truly appreciate the blessings that we have, because obedience to God and holiness is its own reward. Holiness is its own reward. It's, it's a beautiful life. We get to be like Christ. We get to be how God intends us to be. It should bring us happiness to know that we are being how God created us to be. And when he sees our lives, that, that it, it blesses him. It blesses what he knows. He knows what's going on inside of us. He knows what we, what we want to say, what we want to do. And, I, and I, I remember just saying this recently in, in the Christian Foundation class that when we, work, when we say no to sin, it's one of the highest forms of worship that we can express to God when we say no to sin. When we're tempted and we want to sin, but we say no by God's grace and his power, we say no to it, one of the highest forms of worship. So it's a beautiful thing when we obey God's word. But if we're not in God's word and if there's not God's revelation being in, that's in front of us and being sown into us, then we'll be like the people that he talks about in the verse and we'll cast off restraint. And he wants us happy. He wants us blessed. But we have to do it the way his way, through obedience to, to him. Now, we're going to start just to look at a few verses here that have to do with masters and how they are treating their servants. He says in verse 19, A servant will not be corrected by mere words, for though he understands, he will not respond. So you, when you're correcting servants here, or you're correcting people, you can't just do it just by words only. You have to lead by example, first of all. We have to lead by example, and they have to see us be able to do the things that we're telling them to do. But also we need to give them practical instruction in terms of showing them how to do it. Because they may not know how to do it. We just use words alone and describe a process. Have you ever had someone train you at a job and they try to do it without actually showing you and doing it while they're doing it. It's really hard when they're, even they're writing it down or they're doing a little video and explaining it. You just have to see them do it. So we can't think that we're going to correct behavior that we want to change if we're just using mere words. We have to use example. We have to use practical instruction, hands-on instruction, and uh, it's always wise to do that. Verse 20, do you see a man hasty in his words? There is no hope. There is more hope for a fool than for him. 
So he's talking again about words. I'm, I'm sure he's talking to other people besides us. We, we don't struggle with words ever, right? Of course we do. So we need to be slow to speak, quick to listen. We need to wait, measure our words. We need to ask if that's something that we should say, all those things. But he doesn't want us to be hasty with our words. He wants us to be very careful because he says there's more hope for a fool than for a person who's um, hasty with his words. So we don't want him to do that. He's warning us against that. Maybe this week you've said some things you regretted. I mean, this is God saying, you know, there's grace for you. I forgive you and all of that, but let's work on being careful about what we say and, and how we say things. Verse 21. He who pampers his servant from childhood will have him as a son in the end. And the idea is a spoiled son. This is, this is talking about spoiling children or spoiling a servant that was raised up in your home. All of that. If you spoil somebody, anybody, you're not, you're not helping them. You're hurting them. You're making them make it more difficult for them to be successful. And we can do that with our kids. We can spoil them. I mean, I, man, I was the youngest out of seven kids. I was the baby, the brat. You probably could predict that. But man, I, was, I did not um, have to do a lot of things my other siblings had to do. There was special treatment for little Patrick. Um, you know, there, I didn't, I got the, I got all kinds of things they didn't get. And they had a lot of hostility. I just thought they were just being, you know, what's your deal? You know, relax. You're being critical. You could have this stuff too if you knew how to get it. You know, I was a really big brat. If you know how to talk to her, you could get this stuff. What's wrong with you? You know, and they, of course that didn't help me at all. They, you know, didn't want to talk to me even more. Um, but obviously if we're spoiling people, we're not, we're, we're, we're not setting them up for success because the world out there is not going to spoil them. And usually the things that we're doing to spoil them are giving things that they can't handle yet or that they don't have any business having or they didn't work for and they can't have the, the satisfaction of being able to pay for something. When you bought your first car with your own money, it was totally different than driving your parents' car that you complained about. Oh, station wagon, I'll drive that station wagon. How come I got to drive this? You're not taking care of it and all that, not taking care of the eight track. Okay, there, maybe, not, maybe, maybe you didn't have an eight track, but you know, then you get your own car. Now, my first car, I know this will impress you, um, so prepare yourself. But my first car was a Honda CRX. Anyone remember a Honda CRX? Those little Hondas, and um, the front bumper was kind of falling off, and you know. Uh, but it doesn't matter because it was mine. I paid for it, and I took great care of it. But when you spoil somebody, you're giving them things that they didn't earn. They didn't. It's not appropriate for them to have. So we have to be very careful. And the thing is, is that and this is kind of maybe can help us when we are wanting things from God. We think that he should be giving us certain things. Maybe we're not ready for them. Maybe there, there are things that would hurt us if we had them at the moment, and he's trying to protect us from being harmed. So he says, no, not right now. Your character can't handle that, or it would be detrimental to, to the other things that I'm doing in your life because those things don't mix. They're fine in and of themselves, but together, they're mixed. They're not going to work out well for you. And so God knows what's best. So we have to be careful. Verse 22. An angry man, why is he talking about anger all the time? It's making me mad. It's convicting. An angry man stirs up strife 
and a furious man abounds in transgression. So usually angry people, (laughs) I just can't help but think about my daughter. She's working at Starbucks now, and she's telling me about all these people that come in that are, you know, mid-40s, from like 40 up to 60 in that range, how rude they are to her and how angry they are. And then the younger people are way more relaxed and way more gracious and all that. I'm like, that's great. That's a, that's a, that's a, makes my generation look, look bad. Um, and, and they're just, she's like, they're just angry, period. If you get so angry that you have to act this way to a total stranger about something so minor about, what do you mean, should I, what do you mean, do, you, do I want room for my cream? No, I never have room for my cream. Well, you should know that. I come in here every day. If you're willing to say stuff like that, then you are a very angry person in every other part of your life. But usually angry people don't, uh, they're not just an island to themselves. <laughs> they affect other people and they stir up strife. They're not trying to necessarily, they just do because they're just angry and want what they want all the time. It's just like two toddlers that are in a room and there's toys. There's going to be battles. There's going to be calling people out. I'm meeting you behind the recliner and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna throw down here because you're taking my little, you know, little airplane thing, play school airplane thing, and, and I, I want to play with that first. And they're battling and they're crying and they're, you know, being harsh with each other. And I knocked so-and-so down and they landed on their diaper really hard and got mad at me and threw a toy at me. And, you know, it just gets ugly. I guess it's, you know, it just gets ugly. I'm glad I'm done with that stage. Um, not just personally, but that my kids are done with that stage. But, um, you know, it just start, stirs up strife. I never thought I would ever talk about toddlers fighting with that verse, but it happens. Um, and a furious man abounds in transgression. See, usually the thing is, when we're engaged in that kind of fury and anger and all that, we're causing strife, but also we're sinning and we're affecting other people. We're saying things that are hurtful towards them. We're not being loving. We're not being patient. And we're doing other things. We can, I mean, man, people that grab weapons and do all kinds of stuff. So we need to, again, is this the second or third time this chapter he's talking about anger? So he's really zeroing in on anger. We need to listen to that. We don't want to model for our kids, this is how we solve problems. We solve problems by raising our voice and being mad and blowing up. That's how we solve problems. We don't want to model that for our kids. We want to model patience and all those things. If you're sensing that you're getting to a place where you're not under the control of the Lord in that way, you need to leave the room or get, leave the situation until you can be under, um, under the control of the Holy Spirit again. Verse 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. The very first sin was pride in Lucifer, who wanted to be lifted up and exalted like God. And, and that pride is so hard to see sometimes in ourselves because one of the first things it does is it makes it hard for us to recognize it in ourselves. Pride means to see ourselves above. And we're trying to see ourselves above, and it, it could be really uh, subtle. And sometimes we just need other people, or the, especially the Lord, but other people sometimes, uh, hey, let me ask you some questions, you know, and... Um, just to be humble and say, look, I, I know I'm, I think I'm something, but you know, I have a lot of room to grow. So we think sometimes our pride 
if you know, it'll bring us high. It'll bring us, we'll be elevated. We'll be a higher place in life. We'll be all these things. And he actually says a pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Verse 24, whoever is a partner with a thief hates his own life. He swears to tell the truth, but reveals nothing. I believe it's talking about a person who refuses to testify in, in some kind of legal case because they don't, they don't want to incriminate themselves. And as a result, they end up perjuring themselves or not being forthright with things and they end up suffering as a result of it. And the whole lesson is don't partner with a thief. <laughs> you know, don't partner with a criminal. Don't, we're supposed to be equally yoked. We're told in Ephesians, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. We're not supposed to be partnering and hooking up and linking up with wickedness and, and all these things. And so you can think that you're trying to protect yourself, but in reality, you're, you're hurting yourself. Verse 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. This is so true. The fear of man is a snare. Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. You're trying to have everyone like you. It's very difficult to, to, to walk in that and be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean we go around being harsh or insensitive or saying things that, you know, just not trying to understand people's perspective and just this is my way or the highway. I'm not talking about that. But we can't make decisions because we're trying to get the approval of people. You can't be a servant of God that's used by the Lord in a significant way and be a man pleaser. It just can't happen. You, I know on all of us there's different levels of where we feel comfortable with having confidence before people. Some of us have okay confidence. Some of us have very little confidence before people. And we're really concerned about what people think. But, and some of us maybe don't deal with that nearly as much. I think all of us on some level want people to like us and want people's approval. But he says the fear of man brings a snare. So, the, and when he talks about the last, last part of verse 25, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be saved, he's contrasting dan there's danger going on and a person is being fearful of man and he's saying don't be fearful of man. Don't worry about what man can do whether they, what they believe, what they're going to actually do physically, all those things, trust in the Lord. Then you'll be safe. Because ultimately, whatever we think is so important that we're willing to compromise in what we say or what we do to try to protect that because we're afraid about what someone thinks, ultimately, God's responsible for that, isn't he? He's ultimately sovereign over that because that's something that, that he's in charge of in our lives, and we need to submit to that. We need to recognize that it's God's the one that's responsible for that promotion. God's the one that's responsible for that reaction or that thing that I need or that partnership or whatever it is that I'm trying to compromise because to keep this person liking me so I can have this thing that I think I should have. Ultimately, God's responsible for that because promotion comes from the Lord. And the things that he knows that we need, he knows that we need before we even recognize that we need them. So we can trust him and his judgment. There is so much havoc that happens in believers' lives because they are consumed by people's approval. 
And, we, and it's, we have to battle it. All of us do. It never ends. You have to battle it. But the most important thing I need to do as a Christian is I need to, what is pleasing to God? That's all that matters, ultimately. What's pleasing to Him? If I do what's right for, uh, to Him, related to Him, and other people, then, then I can put my head on that pillow at the end of the day and know that I did the right thing, even if people didn't have the right reaction. Because bad reactions from people are not necessarily at all a barometer to the judge whether or not you make right decisions or not. There's always, you make a decision, and we could put the temperature at a certain level here, we could put the lights a certain way, and there'd be people that were mad about either way. Not mad, but you know what I mean. Like, they, they don't like this, they don't like that. Some people do, some people don't. You can't, you're just going to drive yourself crazy if you are always doing things to try to get people's approval. We have to have our faith in God. Verse 26. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. Again, that's related. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. And lastly, verse 27, an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, and he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. So obviously, if you're a different, in different kingdoms, you're going to not be attracted to the other kingdom. We shouldn't be attracted to the, the kingdom of darkness. We should be repelled by it and not want anything to do with it. And likewise, they think of that of us. And it's funny that he puts that right by the fear of man brings a snare. Because sometimes we want the unrighteous to like us. We want their approval. We want to show that we're just as cool. I'm not going to say hip because that would date me, but I just did it anyway. But we want to be like just so impressive with everybody. And we're just like everybody else except we have Jesus. And No, we're not just like everybody else. We're in a different kingdom. We have a different citizenship. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Our eyes have been illuminated. We're, our eyes have been opened. We're in a different covenant. We, I mean, I could go on and on. The, the fact is we're different from the world, and we need to recognize that and not try to get the approval of people who don't know Christ or seek to get the approval of people that do know Christ. We need to do what's right, period, and let the chips fall where they may. So I think these are great things. We'll stop here today. We'll continue in the next chapter, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this, this chapter, Lord. We thank you for all the wisdom in it. We want to be completely under the control of your Holy Spirit related to our tempers, related to our words, related to how we treat people. Lord, we want you to live your life through us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, by your grace and by your power to do that. Help us to please you. Help us to not be engaged in um, worrying about other people, what they think about us. Help us to do the right thing no matter what anyone thinks or says. Because ultimately, Lord, we recognize that it's your opinion that matters. And we want to please you. We want you to say at the end of our lives, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to bless you. You're the one we're living for. So we thank you for these verses. Use them for your purposes in an ongoing way. In Jesus' name, amen.